0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Good Luck Club podcast. My guest today is entrepreneur Bernard Moon, co-founder at Spark Labs Group. Bernard, welcome.
1: Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me on.
0: I wonder if you could start off by kindly telling my audience a little bit about you.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, I'm a co-founder and partner at Spark Labs Group. Uh, which we describe as a network of startup accelerators and venture capital funds. Uh, we're relatively young for being in the VC space. Uh, we launched uh, over seven years ago, but now we have uh, 10 startup accelerators globally and, and three venture capital funds that invest. Now I've invested in over 280 companies across six continents.
0: Wow, oh, that's quite a resume. 208 companies, impressive. Well, but maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about what you think success means to you.
1: Um, Success, well, I would say on a personal level, I just generally think success is making a a positive impact beyond your immediate scope and network. Um, And I believe you're a successful person if you help create, create change within your community and the people around you. Um, probably in a professional framework, I have never been really a person to keep count or compare, but for spark labs or like a VC firm, I think you have to do some of this because that's how institutions sort of see you and measure you and, you know, how you raise capital as a VC or entrepreneur. Um, so you do have to sort of think about, you know, certain benchmarks, you know, you know, related to those definitions.
0: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Within the investment industry, ultimately, if you're not making a return, you can't survive, right? That's right. That's right. There'll, there'll, yeah. People won't give you more money if you're not making the money. So it's it's.
1: Yeah, there's definitely pressure there. I mean, we even joke around as a young firm because we haven't had you know many big exits yet. You know, we call ourselves a paper tiger because you know on paper. Some of our funds, their return profile is excellent, but you know, institutional investors are looking for realized returns, right? So we're 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 you know we're pretty transparent, and the culture's pretty uh, I guess blunt with each other. So we we joke around with, like, oh, yeah, we're a paper tiger. People think we're successful, but we're really not until we have like exits.
0: It's, it's so refreshing to have such an honest overview on things of someone's business and. Uh, You know, some people would see uh, paper tiger as an insult, but I like the way you kind of embrace it. And uh, and and, you know, it's also interesting, I guess, coming at it. And I know we'll get into your history as an entrepreneur as well. But I think it's interesting coming at it from the perspective of a lot of the companies you invest in. They're also not profitable for the for the longest of times, right? They're investing and. growing and investing. So, you know, it's interesting that the VC world is, is, is less inclined to operate that way, although that's exactly what they invest in every day, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true. Well, it depends on the space, but you're right. Generally, you know, they're not generating significant revenue until a certain point, By right? you know, in their development, you know, at the C and even Series A, you know, they're still developing their product, finding their product market fit. You know, hopefully by their B and C rounds, they have good revenue traction, right? Um, unless you're, you know, like maybe like 10 plus years ago, if it was a consumer facing app, then you might not see significant revenue until your like C and D rounds, right? So.
0: Well, you could argue that uh, as an investment business, you know, you're seven years old, perhaps significant returns shouldn't come until fund B, C or D, right?
1: That's right. Could that's argue right. The, same, <laughs> the same
0: ethos. So, yeah, two hundred and eight companies. I mean, just a couple of those uh, becoming two
1: hundred
0: eighty. Two hundred eighty. Wow. See, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, Zoom Sound, letting us down. Two hundred eighty. That's you know, it's just a phenomenal amount of businesses. The due diligence alone on all of that must have uh, been a job and a half. But just you know, a couple of those exiting will uh, you know we could would make instantly turn it from a paper tiger into a real tiger.
1: That's right. That's right. We're just uh, patiently waiting. I mean, we've had some smaller exits, but I think nothing to sort of harp about yet. And we always sort of benchmark ourselves because we're mainly seed investors. So seed definitely is a longer horizon than even Series A. Right? You know, just to give like a comparable, if you think about it, uh, Y Combinator didn't have their first big exit until Dropbox went IPO 12 years later. So if you think about it, like really early stage investors, it definitely is more risky even than a series A fund and the time horizon is longer. So,
0: I know a lot of my listeners um, often reach out and ask about how to raise money and of course people always throw around, you know, angel investors or early stage like you, um, investors. What, what do you look for when you're investing, for my audience to understand? How, how do you make a decision? I guess it's probably a short answer and a long answer, but is, is there a gut instinct there or, or is, it, is it all about the data?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's a combination again. Um, well, there's three categories I think most, you know, VCs and investors, they say they look at, they look at, you know, the, the team, uh, the market and the product, Right. The, the market a- answer is probably the easiest always like, you know, is this, you know, is the market big enough that that person is going for, right? Most of the startups that come to you, they, you know, you assume that's true or, or you, you find out that's true. And then you go to the product, right? Whether it's consumer or enterprise, can you really see yourself or companies using this product? And then you assess the team, you know, whether it's the right sort of combination of business and technical, founders and who are the early employees that they already have on board, Um, especially at the seed stage, definitely there's a more emphasis on the team, right? Because you assume that that company will go through at least one, you know, change of business model or pivot, right? So how are they able to handle that adversity, right? And are they stubborn enough to stay with their vision, but flexible enough to pivot when needed? right, because these are sort of soft skills. And then um, you really also have to check in terms of the team chemistry, because that's the, I think that's the hardest part, is that, you know, you could say 30, 40% of startup failure, I mean, is really the founder dynamics, right? they could at the best technology, but, you know, there's always a breakdown of founders or, and team members, and, and that leads to startup failure. Right?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting point. I think a lot of people just assume businesses fail because of cash flow or um, idea didn't work. Um, I'm, I've seen different stats thrown thrown around, but you know, I, I saw a stat saying nine out of ten businesses fail because the co-founders fall out with each other. <laughs> Um, which, which is an argument for single co-founders, but then it's very lonely, right? So in, in your opinion, do you think it's good to have a co-founder? Again, thinking about my listeners, if, if they're thinking of starting a business, do you, think, do you see any sort of um, correlation between success, single co-founder, uh, success, co- two, two, two founders?
1: Yeah, I think there's been um, like prior research done on that. Uh, when you jump from single to two, the success of a startup exponentially increases. Right. And then I think there's a slight increase to three and then it flat lines at four or something. Mm. So that's why you'll see even Y Combinator or, or us are, are, accelerators. We rarely uh, accept single founders, right? Y Combinator, they've been public about it. They say that, you know, they, they, they look at companies with at least two co-founders. Um, and even a lot of investors will say that, I mean, there's, mm various reasons, not just the data, historical data that's already there. But, you know, you want, you know, someone equal, right, to challenge your ideas, make you better, sort of sharpen your thinking, right? And doing a startup, you'll definitely go through a lot of ups and downs and a lot of pains. And if you're by yourself, it's just really difficult, right? So you need at least that one or two other person that has an equal voice with you, right? You don't wanna be, the danger also of I think being a single founder is that um, you have no one to really check you, right? You know, because I think there's always a temptation with you know, a large percentage of the people that are in such leadership positions that they'll just surround themselves or create a culture where they're dominant or um, they have a bunch of yes people around them, right? And that's just gonna to lead to failure anyway. so.
0: So having someone that can challenge you, I guess, is, is probably key. So I, I always talk about your life partner being an important element of any startup, too, because that, that person can also check you and challenge you. right? So I, I always, uh, yeah. in investments I made, I always, always like to meet the actual partners of the people that are running the businesses.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a good, that definitely would be a good check if it was a single founder, right, mm. you, you know, who, who's around them.
0: Yeah, yes. totally. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk a, a bit about your, your history and, and how you ended up uh, doing what you're doing today. I mean, of course, I, I was looking at your LinkedIn and uh, mm-hmm. looking back to 2004. Some of my listeners are quite young, so they're suddenly going to realize that you're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're older than 20 because you've got a young sounding voice. But um, do you think, do you, think, you know, look back at 2004 when you were you know, working, you started uh, as a co-founder in your first business? Um, how, how did that happen? I always like people to understand the journey of, of, of someone like you. So it sounds like when I look at LinkedIn, you're straight into being a co-founder. What were you doing just before that? And how did you end up starting your own business?
1: Um, actually, the first startup we, I did was in 99.
0: Now you are showing your age to the audience.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was, um, it was during the first internet boom. And so my initial career path and interest was in public policy. So when I was at Columbia in New York, 96, 98, that was during the first internet boom. And, you know, believe it or not, it was actually crazier than a few years ago when like everyone and their grandmother wanted to do a startup. And so during my second year in graduate school, I had, uh, even though I, I was in public service and public policy, I had two groups of, uh, two different groups of friends ask me to join their startup. Um, part of the reason why is I think they uh, knew that my parents were entrepreneurs, and I actually helped out with some of their businesses and So my friends in investment banking and consulting they started bouncing ideas off me and Then towards the end of my second year when I was graduating, I decided to join uh, one startup. Uh, and launch it with my two co-founders, Jimmy and Peter. So that's how I diverged from my original career path. And since then, I just found out, even from that first experience, that I love uh, the chaos of starting a new company, from concept on a napkin napkin to launching a new product and service. And so I just sort of fell in love with that sort of you know, the energy and excitement of an early-stage company, and I just sort of stayed with it since.
0: And I, I'm just looking again at your history. Did you ever actually work for anyone else?
1: I did. Initially, after uh, undergrad, I worked in government for the governor of Illinois, and then uh, I did a postgraduate fellowship for service called the Coral Fellowship and then then I went to graduate school and then I just jumped into the whole startup world. I mean in between since then I had stints in finance. I was at a boutique investment bank and then a family office and then I went back to the startup world and then launched Spark Labs uh, in 2013. Well Spark Labs Korea 2012 and then Everything else Spark Labs two thousand thirteen.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I think um yeah, I was looking at some of the companies you started, you know, in two thousand eight you did Open Web Asia. Sounds like um
1: Oh yeah, that was a conference that we did with uh different sort of tech people within Asia.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did uh it's, it's fascinating, I guess. I, I, I always, okay, always think about what the audience can learn from, from the process. I mean, do, do your parents, they were both entrepreneurs, which I, was, I think is a fascinating point. But do you, do you think you know, entrepreneurs were born or bred? And, and do you think your parents influenced you to go one way or the other in the early years?
1: Um, I, I believe it's both. Um, I think the research states that more, that more entrepreneurs are sort of born by influence from their parents like me. So I think it wasn't, I didn't feel discomfort in uh, starting a new company when my friends asked me to, right? Even though I wasn't in the field of business, when they asked me when they're bouncing off ideas, I think it sort of just came naturally because my parents actually even bounced off ideas with me and I would help them uh, write some of their business plans. So I felt like it was sort of like a natural process when I launched my first startup. Um, yeah. So they started various retail businesses. The last one was actually a, a coffee chain in South Korea. They grew it to 12 stores and then they sold that. Um, so my second official job was actually my first startup that I mentioned after graduate school uh, called View Plus. It was a video on demand startup that I did with my uh, co-founders, Jimmy and Peter. Um, But citing the other side, I look at my wife, who's doing a startup now. And her, my wife, Christine, she was always a big company person, and she liked structure. So she started her career in investment banking at Morgan Stanley. And um, in 2004, uh, that's how we first moved to the Bay Area, she joined Google. So she was there for nine years. Uh, she went to Dropbox, but she joined Dropbox when it was already a unicorn. And then she did a few other, she joined earlier and earlier startups. And a year ago, she decided, hey, I'm going to start my own company. And she co-founded uh, an autonomous driving startup for mass transit called Blue Space. So for her, I think it was by osmosis, by living in Silicon Valley, by seeing other people starting companies and creating their future, I think she finally felt comfortable with the idea of starting her own company. Um, But if you were to ask me like three years ago, hey, would Christine ever start a startup? I'd be like, no way, (laughs) zero chance. But so it's interesting to see like now she's, you know, she started her own company and it's in a very difficult and competitive space, you know, autonomous driving, so
0: very hot space as well i think that's a big big future it's interesting what you're saying there's a few things i want the audience to pick up on i mean first of all i always feel like this concept of like a leopard never changed its spots it's absolutely not true people do change and and you can say evolve or devolve depending on how you look at it but you know Uh if if someone three years ago had asked you with your wife would do a startup you would have said 100 percent no and now look and i think you know that's true as part of what i'm also trying to get out there to the to folks out there that perhaps thought they were going to go get a job and so on you can start a business of your own my view and what you've just described there is is that your wife has built up her risk muscle you know she's, she's, yeah. she's got as you say she's gone further and further down the food chain in into you know into the earlier and earlier stages of a business got comfortable with it and realize that's probably where the excitement is and, and, and now has the risk appetite to start something of her own which which i think you know is is a process right i mean you you're lucky and, and so was i for that matter born into entrepreneurial yeah. families right that gave us that that feeling early on but but your parents did they have any failures do you ever remember was my parents at one point you know they wanted me to be a lawyer they did not want me to be a lawyer uh, uh, um, an entrepreneur in a way because they saw it as risky did you ever have that twinge at point in your, in your younger life?
1: Yeah, I saw them fail a couple of businesses uh, in between, right? But I think, I don't know if I really thought deeply about it, right? Because they just, they didn't really, I mean, they stressed out about it, but then they said, oh, we're just going to do our next one, right? So I think failure was acceptable right and that was a process and that that's sort of interesting because they came from you know they're korean american but you know they immigrated from korea which is a more conservative society right Mm. and they're definitely unique because they never pressured me versus other korean or i guess typical immigrant families in the u.s or asian american immigrant families were like oh you have to be a doctor or something Mm. right Mm. right so they didn't they, they didn't really pressure me you know on that front
0: do you, do you think your education uh, helped you? I mean, it sounds like that's where you got your initial co-founder network from. But...
1: Uh, my education, I think, I don't think it directly helped me. I mean, for, well, oh, oh, my co-founder network. Well, I mean, I went to Wisconsin, but my friend at Northwestern introduced me to my co-founder, Jimmy, our freshman year. And that's how eventually, several years later, we got together and and launched our first startup. Um, I think where I got comfortable was actually when I did this postgraduate program called the Coral Fellowship. Uh, It's sort of a training ground for people that are interested in public service. There's a fair amount of alumni that are actual U.S. congressmen and senators. But it was an interesting program, and I still say it's actually the second best career experience I had after my first startup because the premise is, is, that they threw you in a lot of uncertain situations, right? Like you didn't know what the assignment was for that week until Monday morning. And they would be like, you have a meeting with the mayor of St. Louis, go. Right. And you'll find out your directions there. So they constantly threw you in uncomfortable situations. And I think that was actually A great training ground uh, not just for public service but for actually business so then when I did my first startup it's all about uncertainty right it's about also a lot of taking a lot of acceptable risk right I remember even we think of it crazy now but like Jimmy and I remember one night we're like you know filling out like 10 credit card forms online right like trying to like you know rack up our credit card debt initially to get our product built right so we took this risk and it was actually a lot of enormous risk for you know being in our 20s but you know it was acceptable in our mind for some reason
0: Well, and looking again at your your career history, um, it, it seems like um, when I look, it's two thousand and ten you started doing XS Group, um, and two thousand and eleven you did Vidquick, and then two thousand and twelve was when Spark Labs seemed to fully come to life. I mean, I, I always say to people you can't do more than one thing at once, but looks like there you're doing quite a few things at once. Um, what what what's your experience through that journey? What what's going on there?
1: Yeah, I think uh, we try to launch XS Group, like right? That was actually a, a startup that I was launching with uh, two other co-founders, right? And there actually, I think, because we were more sort of experienced, um, we had a set goal in mind of, of what we needed to raise, right? Because some people think, oh, you know, sometimes you, uh, you, you could raise too much money, right? there's also a problem of raising too little capital, what I call funding to fail, right? And we knew to play within that luxury goods space, we needed a minimum of 3 million to launch, right? And we got commitments of 2 million, but since we couldn't hit that 3, we we actually didn't launch the company, right? So I think experience sort of taught us, hey, if we took this 2 million, it's just going to be, it's going to end in zero a year from now. So, you know, I think because I was with also two other experienced entrepreneurs, you know, we decided not to move forward.
0: And, and so that, that didn't reach its funding goal. And so, I mean, then it was quick, you moved to something else. Is that kind of how it, how it flowed? So you're like, okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. Then, then we went to another startup with quick, quick. And then we launched Spark Labs. And then I, I went full-time on Spark Labs in the end of 2013.
0: And it's interesting the way you describe it. It's, it feels almost clinical, but there must have been a lot of emotion during those moments where you, know, you have this idea. Again, I'm thinking about my audience. People have an idea. They can't raise the money. It feels like you made quite a logical decision. We didn't raise the money, so I'll just do this next thing. Is, is it that logical, or was there a lot of emotion?
1: <laughs> there was some emotion involved, but I think as I mentioned, since we were more experienced entrepreneurs, we sort of had set goals and metrics in mind in terms of what we needed to launch. And so it was almost like a clinical decision to a certain degree, right? You know, an investor offered us 2000000 million. We we're like, oh, great, but we need three. So we went around trying to get three. We couldn't hit that metric. So we said, okay, let's just move on. Mm. <laughs> I, think not just I, of course, I think if we were... I think if we were if we were younger in our you know in our mid twenties we would have taken that two million. I would be like, oh yeah, let's let's try to hit it. We'll do it, right? But I remember actually talking to another founder within that space, and they raised you know a similar amount, like two million, and I was like, I, I don't think it's going to work out, <laughs> and it didn't. Just because, you know, we
0: knew sort of the numbers on that front. Mm. I think there's a learning there for listeners, I, I, a big one. And I and I feel like a lot of people here in startup world, you know, you, you see that graphic where someone digging away and the gold or the whatever is just so close, right? And they're digging away and then they give up. And just as they were about to reach the gold, it's, it's one of the favorite graphics that seems to fly around with anyone that's hashtag startup world, right? It's that kind of persistence thing, which I also talk about a lot. But there's something in what you're saying, which is really, I think, quite important for people to pick up on, which is you kind of set yourself a red line, right? Like that, if we get X, then we'll carry on. If we don't, then we'll move on. But that's serious discipline. Because, like you say, I mean, two million, my mindset, even today, after all the companies I've done, my mindset goes to, well, let's take the two million, get it as far as we can, and I'm sure we'll raise the other million over the next 12 months' runway, you know? um or or, or is it just a capital cost of excess that you just knew you needed the whole amount
1: yeah we knew that we needed the whole amount or it would be uh sort of a cash flow issue also right within that space so i think it's good that we were disciplined and it's funny because it's like it reminds me now since you're talking about this topic um Even before I actually started doing startups, you know, my dad would sometimes, like, talk about his philosophy and stuff, right? And he'd be like, hey, business is like poker. You have to know when to fold, Mm. right? And a lot of people don't know when to fold, right? So you just have to know when is the right time and move on, right? And like poker, it's not an emotional decision.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think for a lot of people and I would put myself in this category, I have not noted when to fold. And sometimes I'm glad I didn't because the person holding the hand opposite me um doesn't have what I thought, you know? So this it's an interesting uh, analogy actually. And uh, yeah, and I I think that your your way of thinking is is really quite um intellectual about building something which I think is quite emotional. And so when you're looking at startups to invest in now, do you um, do you take this into consideration is it well, we'll give you the money if you raise all of the round or, or is it really a founder led decision on that point
1: yeah I, I think not founder led I think it depends on on the founder and how comfortable we feel I mean but you know I think most investors they're not going to put in their money until you know the stated minimum target that that founder's trying to reach right is raised um, but in terms of my own experiences, I, I do think I probably uh, push that s- aside a little bit, right? Because you do want to see, you know, more of that sort of, you know, hustler mentality, can-do, et cetera, in the people that you invest in, right? So it, it is a delicate balance, though, because you want someone that's driven and stubborn, like I mentioned, but, you know, the discipline to, to pivot and know when to sort of change course. All right so that's the balance you know that you try to find in in, in entrepreneurs that you invest in
0: i can i can hear my listeners or um saying they want to hear more about um, excess and and what it was all about and I perhaps have you back on the show going into details of some of these business learnings but I wanted to get your story down a little bit more today so in the last uh, five minutes I've got with you I guess I wanted to get a little bit more into you finally you know your bit so we we talked a little bit about education and, and and I always have this thing about education where I'm nervous that people are going to get university degrees and then they get trapped in in that training and in the debt that that then springs on them and doesn't allow them to start a business. Do do you think that's true or not?
1: Um, I mean, in terms of what, I mean, whether a university degree is necessary or I'm sorry, I missed the first part.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, my basic point is, do you think education, when you're looking at all these startups, you've got a huge sample size, they have 280 companies. Do you Mm -hmm. think education is, is, an important thing or not? Do you you feel like a bit like having two co-founders increases the odds of success? Do you think having gone to Stanford or Harvard, because again, there's a lot of investment companies that will only invest in people that have come from Harvard, right? Or only invest in people that have come from these prestigious schools. Do you think that's important or not?
1: Us as a firm, I would say we don't look at that as a primary factor. right? I think we more look at, you know, the founders in terms of what they did right before and how the team sort of gels together and works together. Uh, I will say there are firms out there, like you mentioned, Yeah, they do look at if it's like Stanford engineer or worked at Google or certain sort of signals like that. Um, I think since we're invest globally, I don't think we look at the pedigrees, especially from sort of us universities so, yeah, then then you have to sort of dig a little deeper and do, I, I think, uh, a little more due diligence right, in terms of the personality of the founders and their background and doing reference checks. But I think that's all uh, uh, more necessary and important too, right? Because going also into my personal experience, right, like I could say that some people looked awesome on paper. And just like for any job, right, in a corporate job or whatever, you're hiring someone, right? This person is like, you know, Harvard grad, undergrad, HBS, right? Shining star at Bain or BCG or McKinsey or whatever, right? When you get them into the startup world, it's, I think it's a whole nother story, right? Or when they're at, you know, they work at Google, but then when they're in the stressful environment, you know, I say when that stress is on you and there's fires to put out, true character comes out. Right? And I've seen it where, you know, not just from my own experience, but even in our portfolio companies, they hire, you know, someone with a great resume, great actually even reference checks. But when they're in that startup environment, like you see a whole other side of that person, that's right? Amazing. Right, And that's the same thing, like even in sports, like I, I play basketball. I say like sometimes you don't see a person's true character come out until they're on the basketball court. And that's when you find out, oh, that person that you you thought was so nice and gentle is actually a jerk
0: (laughs) totally that's why i always tell people to work with their partners at least once in their life you know then you'll see what someone's really like when you work with them it's quite hard for people to hide that in those spontaneous moments of frustration you'll get to know what they're really like their moral code and so on so it's uh, true true fascinating do you um do you just briefly, because I know you know I'm running out of time with you now. But do do you believe luck plays a, a big role in the success of a business, or how, what's your view on on the element of luck that that is this podcast's theme?
1: Yes, I, I do. So, and then there's actually it runs of a funny comment that my co-founder Jimmy Kim, who I did my first two scraps with, and we did Spark Labs together. He always says, like you know, very commonly, he's like better to be lucky than smart right right, right? and I, I do think for me like luck or chance or grace or whatever you call it has always played a role in my career and some people say that you create your own luck but I think if you think about the mechanics I mean you know, majority of startup founders they're hustlers many are brilliant right so you know one example is like that lucky meeting or or chance encounter that you get at a conference, right? You know, you go through hundreds of random people and that one meeting could lead to that big break for your company, right? And I think that's more luck. I don't think that's a creation of intelligence or, or more, more work, right? So for me, I would say the lucky break was meeting my co-founder, Jimmy, right, during our first year in college. And then several years later, we would join up to do our first two startups together and then in 2012 meeting to profound spark labs korea right, so i would give luck more weight than a lot of things
0: i can hear the um community um, around this subject uh, kind of Throwing back the whole debate is, well, they went to that conference, so they, you know, they created their own luck. But, of course, there's plenty of people that went to that conference that didn't meet that person that gave them that opportunity, right? So um, yeah. it's, it's a fascinating subject. Of course, I it could also argue you can't control where you're born. <laughs> that is definitely yes. random luck. You're born into an entrepreneurial family that allowed you to take risk, encouraged it even. So, you so know, the, these are all elements of luck that were definitely initially out of your control, right? You did not decide who you were going to uh, be born Uh, into what family you're going to be born into although my wife always says that our son chose us he looked down (laughs) and said I'm going to have those two please (laughs) they're going to give me a good life So we always thank him. We always thank him for choosing us. But um, (laughs) um, fascinating to to talk to you. I'd love to have you back on, actually, because I feel like it's gone super quick and I haven't got uh, half the uh, bits and pieces I wanted to get from you. So I'd love to have you come back on and and talk a little bit more about your experience, talk a little bit more about Spark Labs process and more about your experiences. And and so love to have you back if if you're up for that.
1: Sure. We'd love to. This is fun
0: yeah thanks and I'd just like to end it with a light hearted question although there's lots of other things I'd like to ask but just um, if you went back to younger you and gave some advice um, out of interest how old are you and, and what would the advice be
1: Oh, well, how old am I uh, well I'm 49 so if I were to go back to I don't know if you asked that. I'm sorry. No, that's sorry. okay. Now the audience knows
0: you're, you're, you're young. You're young, But I mean, what age were you? You know, if you went back and you said to your eight-year-old self or you went back and you said to your 18-year-old self, which age is a good age to go back and what would you say? So
1: I'd probably go back to like 22, right? Or right when I'm graduating from college. Um, the advice there would be just to appreciate the people, you know, the people around you more, right? From friends to acquaintances to strangers, right? Because I think it's easy, you know, to appreciate your friends and family, definitely even the acquaintances and strangers, right? I think that would, uh, I think I've been definitely more sort of valued in my life. Um, yeah. And then I think on a practical note, probably, Going back to late, you know, like a decade later in my life, um, at certain points in my career, I probably would have taken less risk uh, and not doing a startup, especially when when our first kids were born. So I wouldn't create so much stress with my wife.
0: <laughs> Interesting. I have a similar experience. I know what you mean. I'm just <laughs> writing it down. I don't want to forget that. now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm going to sum up some of the things I've taken away from our chat today. It's, it's a lot of really interesting things, Bernard, so, so thank you. But here's, here's my quick uh, takeaway. Um, I, I, I think this concept of knowing when to fold is really quite powerful. So your father passed that bit of knowledge to you, and now we're passing it hopefully on to 50,000 people that are listening. I, I think knowing when to fold is a really interesting part of the technique of being a successful entrepreneur. And and I think it takes a lot of guts to fold, even if you've got a good hand. And so it's a really interesting um, example, I think. I love what you were saying earlier in the podcast about creating change, being a measure of success, making an impact, uh, being a measure of success – Um, I think it's also interesting how sometimes the dynamic, as you've mentioned, about the finances come into play in everybody's businesses. And I think it's kind of naive to think that money isn't an important part of making any business work. But I think, you know, in each industry, there's different measures of success. And I, I definitely think, with um, the startup world, the measure should be the impact, and, and and hopefully money follows because you're making an impact. That whole like clients need you, clients want you, um, and so you'll you you make money somehow. But I think that's really interesting. I think the um you know the whole idea of uh, my, my feeling this funding to fail point that you've mentioned that a lot of people I think today I see it. You know, there's all this talk about how you shouldn't raise too much money. And, and be yeah. careful but you actually don't hear that often you're not raising enough which is weird because it's it's yeah. actually something that should should be the forefront of have you raised enough good i think right now you know i was in an investor call recently and someone said to the founder you know the number one thing right now is if you've got money in the bank you're likely to survive and if you haven't you're finished doesn't matter yeah. what your idea is what your team is you know like that, that kind of <laughs> mindset the money you know solves all problems kind of google mantra right So, so funding, making sure you're not funding to fail, you know, making sure you're you're going for the the full amount you need um, is a good bit of advice. And so, yeah, and I I think, you know, finally, I I love and I think this is going to be the T-shirt we're going to make uh, around this podcast, which is uh, appreciate people more. I think that's mm. something I can also relate to. I think it's that sometimes in the startup world, we just go, go, go. We build, build, build. We work, work, work. And, uh, you know, I don't tell my wife enough that I love her. Uh, and and I think mm. it's important to sometimes pause and realize, you know, the people around you are important. And it's all well and good building a wonderful company. That's important and often is very important to, you know, making the world a better place, but but just appreciating people. So I think that's a nice message to, to end our podcast on. And uh, so Bernard, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to join us today yeah thank you for having me it was great thank you so much for listening today folks i hope you enjoyed today's podcast we appreciate that you have so many podcasts that you could be listening to if there's anything we can do to improve our podcast make the content better for you allow you to receive it in a format that you like feel free to reach out and let us know if any of bernard's comments today struck a chord or you'd like to know more about his business and his life we put all the links in the comment section in whatever format you're listening to this podcast on today we appreciate you taking the time to listen to us if you found it useful please share it please like it and feel free to comment we always reply to comments we always appreciate feedback and we thank you for taking the time to listen to us today